Hopelessness crushes the spirit and makes a terrible life. Allison Crosswhite appeared to have it made. She had a good job. She was a trader in capital markets, and then she went into research and became a researcher. She had a good income. She had friends. She had romance. Yet she describes the condition of her life in these terms. Shame, anxiety, insecurity, sadness, and hopelessness. Hopelessness crushed her inner self and her inner life and made life terrible for her. Allison is not alone. Her description describes multitudes of millions of people in a worldwide epidemic of hopelessness. The philosophers and counselors of our day recommend a solution to hopelessness. They call it existentialism. That's a $15 scientific term. Let's put it down in its meaning and describe it so that you can understand what that means. It describes the autonomy of the individual. A person with the freedom of an individual. No rules to follow except those that I make or those that I choose to believe and follow. The purpose and meaning in my life will be what I choose it to be. Nothing external will influence me. It'll be what I decide and choose. I am the captain of my own ship, of my own destiny. I will create my own meaning within myself. I will fulfill my own personal desires and thus find happiness in life. What the philosophers and counselors mean to solve the riddle of hopelessness only fosters it and develops it. Actually, hopelessness first appears on our world and in our experience as humans in the Garden in Eden. Satan was the first existentialist, for we read in the scriptures he describes himself as, I will be like the Most High God. God had created him, gave him great gifts and talents and abilities, and he thought he would become like God. And God, with his armies of followers and other angels cast him out and he first appears on earth in the garden in Eden he appears in Genesis chapter 3 when he inhabits the physicality of the serpent and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit in the garden in Eden and it's interesting the temptation that he gave to Adam and Eve is exactly the lifestyle that he chose in essence, he told Adam and Eve, live, live your own lives. Don't listen to God. He's lied to you. Great happiness will come to you if you just follow your own rules and do your own thing. Go ahead, eat of the fruit. It's good. It's delicious. Look at it. Doesn't it look nice? And Eve succumbed to the temptation, and Adam followed her. And the perfect life that they had lived up to that point left them. And they thus began a sinful nature within them because of their sin. Depravity now permeated the totality of their being. And what they had once experienced as a perfect sinless life now began a life of death, sadness, and hopelessness. They were separated from God under God's condemnation. And ultimately God's judgment came upon them and he removed them out of the garden in Eden. 
and thus began a life pattern of following your own desires. It began with Satan, followed through on the human plane by Adam and Eve. When we come to Genesis chapter 4, we find an interesting thing occurs. For Adam and Eve now have children. We don't know how many. It just says they had many children. Genesis chapter 4 describes two of them, two boys, Cain and Abel. What do you know about Cain and Abel? Do you know anything about Cain and Abel? This story has come down through the centuries. And in fact, artists and artisans over the thousands of years since this story have made Cain and Abel the subjects of many art projects. Lord Byron, the great English poet, wrote a play called Cain. In the more current times, if you consider the 1950s current, John Steinbeck wrote his famous novel, East of Eden. And in the 50s, later on, 1955, I believe was the year, they made that book into a movie starring James Dean. That movie has become one of the top 400 movies of all time. I want us to look at this story of Cain and Abel, for it gives us some very interesting insights into hopelessness, its origin, and how we can find victory over that tremendous foe in our lives. It's in Genesis chapter 4, and I'll just read some of it, and I'll just make a few brief comments about it so that you understand this tremendous story. And we'll take a look at this occurrences between Adam and Eve. Starting in Genesis chapter 4, I'll just read a couple of verses and make sure you get the drift, the drift of it. And Adam, and, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. And she bore Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. That makes reference to the fact when God in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, when he judged Adam and Eve for their disobedience, he made a promise that he would send a man, a champion, who would crush the serpent. And here we see Eve thinking that this young man, Cain, was going to be that man. Sadly, he was not that man. So here's Cain, and then shortly after, she bore Abel a second son. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd. And Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a farmer. That's their occupations. We find in verse number three, in the process of time, it came about that Cain brought the fruit of the ground of his crops, and he made an offering to the Lord. And then we find in, in verse number four that Abel followed in a similar pattern. He also brought an offering, an offering only he brought an offering from his flock. He was a shepherd, so he brought something from his flock. And it says in verse 4, and this begins the conflict between Cain and Abel. It says, The Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. Doesn't tell us why he chose Abel's offering and accepted it. He does not, the scripture do not tell us at this description why he rejected the offering from Cain. But it does tell us Cain's response. It says, Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. His anger became so fierce and so violent within him that it affected his whole visage and his whole body. Fierce, violent anger. 
doesn't tell us toward whom, whether towards God for rejecting his offering or towards Abel in jealousy because God accepted Abel's offering. We don't know. Just know that Cain was fiercely angry over the rejection of his offering. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? God came to Cain and said, Look, Cain, why are you angry? What has gotten you so upset? Don't you realize that if, if you go back and you make it right, that you'll be accepted? In our human terms of our day, in a sense, God gave him a mulligan. God said, you got another opportunity, Cain. I'll give you another chance. Let's redo this. Go, go back and make an offering again. Let's correct it. Now we see Cain's response here. God said to him, you know, sin is tempting you. Sin wants to possess you and control you. Don't give in to it. Don't yield to that temptation. Wants to rule over you and dominate you. Don't give in. Next we find Cain coming to his brother Abel and says, let's go out into the field and let's talk. So Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Killed him. Murdered him. We don't know how. We don't know whether he used an instrument or whether he cut him to pieces. We don't know. We just know that when he killed him, it caused Adam to bleed. Because we read about it in a few moments. His anger consumed him to such an extent that he killed his younger brother. Now we read in verse number 9 that the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel? Where's your brother? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? That famous saying? You've heard that saying multitudes of times, I am sure. Here's its source, its origin. Cain had just murdered his brother and God came to him and said, Where's Abel? Where's your brother? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility to take care of my brother? I don't know where he is. Ah, but the Lord didn't let him off the hook that easily. The Lord said to him, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. I know, Cain, what happened. You killed him. You slew him. And his blood is crying out to me from the ground. However it was you killed him, his blood is crying out to me for vengeance and for revenge. And here God gives a punishment to Cain for his disastrous treatment of his brother. Now are you cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from the hand. He was, he was a farmer. This, this was a horrible punishment that God placed upon him. The ground was not going to be fruitful to him anymore. Oh, it might have some, but certainly not like it was. You are cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto her her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond that shall be on the earth. He had two punishments. One is the ground is cursed. You're not going to get the greatest crops anymore. And secondly, you're going to be a vagabond. You're going to wander all over the earth. 
you're not going to have a settled down life. Then we read Cain's response to God's judgment upon him. We read, it says, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That word punishment is an interesting word. It has a multitude of, of descriptions and uses. It can talk about guilt. My guilt is greater than I can bear. It also talks about punishment. The punishment that you have meted out against me is greater than I can bear. What am I going to do? Hopeless. Despair. Sorrow. Sadness. Fear. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? The ground isn't going to be fruitful anymore. I'm going to be a vagabond. I'm going to wander all over the earth. Life will hold no meaning for me anymore. And it shall come to pass that anyone who sees me will take vengeance against me and slay me. And then the Lord said to him, Whoever will slay you, I will take vengeance against that person sevenfold. And he put a mark on Cain. What was the mark? Don't know. But somehow God put a mark upon him, identified him in some fashion, so that people would not take vengeance against him for what he did to Abel, his brother. And it says in verse number 16 of Genesis 4 that Cain left and departed and went out to another land and began a life of wandering and vagabond experience. A life of hopelessness, sorrow, anxiety, fear. That's the story of Cain and Abel. Rather simple in its description, but profound, oh, profound in its experience. It brings up a logical question, which maybe have come, come to your mind. Why did God inspire Moses to write this story? Moses wrote it, those first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote those. Why did he write that story? Why did God inspire him to include in his writing this story of Cain and Abel? Well, you must understand when Moses wrote these books. He wrote these books during the time period when the children of Israel had an exodus out of Egypt. They had lived in Egypt for 400 years, lived in servitude to the Egyptians. God brought them out of Egypt, was taking them to the promised land that he had promised, and we would read about it later in the book of Genesis if you would follow through in the life of Abraham. God promised it to his offspring that he would bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. As they traveled from Egypt to the promised land, Moses wrote those five books and included this story of Cain and Abel. The children of Israel needed some history. They needed some backstory, if you will, to their existence in the wilderness as to why God brought them out of Egypt, why God was giving them the promised land, their origin as even existing as humans. Where did we come from? How did all this happen? Where did this creation come from? So God wanted to provide some instruction to the children of Israel to prepare them for his teachings, his commandments, his demands that they worship him, prepare them for entrance into the promised land. And all of this is backstory to them in history to prepare them for what God had in store and in promise for them. In so doing, what God did through this story 
is described to the children of Israel. The nature of mankind and the nature of God. He described to the children of Israel the nature of mankind. Why they were sinful people. Why were they constantly rebelling against God? Why did they constantly fight Moses, their leader? Because they had inherited through the line from Adam and Eve that original sin nature. Depravity of the human heart completely dominated and permeated the totality of their beings and caused them to sin. Led them into disobedience. Rejection of God's authority over them. Thus began another expansion of individual freedom and autonomy, as we described a few moments ago. That's how they lived their lives. And God wanted them to see where it came from. It came from the original source, Satan himself, tempting Adam and Eve who fell and sinned, and then by birth inherited sinful nature, from the progeny and offspring of Adam and Eve down through the Israelites and down through history. So we see those people, the children of Israel, separated from God, under God's condemnation, depraved in nature, constantly following the sinful desires of their own heart, unable to satisfy God and please him in and of themselves. It shows that they needed to provide offerings to God to please and satisfy him. They knew they were separated from God. Cain and Abel knew that. Adam and Eve knew that. They had separated from God because of their sin. There was a chasm between them. Their nature was different from that of God. And they needed to provide something. There needed to be some way of bridging the gap between God and man because they had inherited the same sinful nature of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and multitudes of people before them. They could not satisfy God in and of themselves any more than Cain and Abel could. That is a glimpse into the human nature of the children of Israel that they observed by this story of Cain and Abel and the events in their lives. Well, what does it teach us about God and his nature? Because we see that here as well, that God used it to the children of Israel to help them get a little bit of knowledge about him. First of all, it proves to them and shows to them that he exists. There is a God. And the word used for God is a covenant-keeping God, a personal God the only true and living God. He exists, and he showed it to them through this story of Cain and Abel. We see God showing himself in the story of Cain and Abel as transcendent. He is above and beyond the experience of personal levels and of normal experience. He transcends humanity. We also see him a holy God. That's why they had to bring offerings. Cain and Abel had to bring offerings because 
they were not holy and God was holy and they needed to somehow bridge that gap. God wanted the children of Israel to see he was holy in nature. They were not. They needed something to bridge the gap between them. We see God showing himself as sovereign. The authority, the ruler, the governor, the creator. The one worthy of obedience. The one worthy of worship. Because of his transcendence. Because of his holiness. Because he created all things and created the children of Israel. We see grace. God, a God of grace. For he did not immediately smite Cain for his awful deed. He gave him another chance. And even after Cain rejected his opportunity to do another offering to please God in a way that would satisfy him, God still protected him. He didn't slay him and bring retribution upon him. He punished him, but he didn't take his life for his murder of Abel, his brother. We see God presented as omniscient, knowing all things. He knew about the offerings. He knew the thoughts and intents of the heart of both Cain and Abel. He knew Cain's murder of his brother. He knew where it happened and how it happened. God was omniscient, and he wanted the children of Israel to see that aspect of his nature and of his character. Another question you might have. God presented to Adam and Eve in the garden that he would provide a champion. Does this story in any way progress that promise in any fashion? Is there anything in that story that gives us a hint as to God's development of that promise of Redemption and salvation for the children. Well, it shows that uh, mankind needs divine intervention. Mankind cannot please God by himself. Even though Abel brought an offering, it was just one offering. And it was for one occasion. Humanity needed divine intervention. And this story revealed that to the children of Israel. It also shows the inability of mankind to bridge that gap. And it shows that God is the judge of what he will accept and what he will reject. And having the rightful privilege and position to make that judgment, those requirements, those demands of worship and obedience. So in summary from this story, God revealed to the children of Israel mankind's dependence upon God to satisfy him. They couldn't by themselves. They needed God's help. They need God's divine intervention to bring about that bridging between humanity and its sinful and depraved nature and condition and God's holiness ultimately leading to the fulfillment of the promise to provide the serpent crusher, the champion that God had promised, who would defeat Satan and destroy him. So we move on from here and we ask another question. What correlation does this have for you and me? We've seen how it applies to the children of Israel. 
and why God would bring it into Moses' attention to describe it and to include it in his writing and the benefit for the children of Israel. What about you and me? Does it have any correlation for you and me today? Especially as we examine this issue of hopelessness. This story reverberates down through the centuries to our day with a message of the origin of hopelessness and God's provision for its relief. Let's take a look at a few things. You might find it interesting to know that this story of Cain and Abel, although described in Genesis chapter 4 in the very first book of the Bible, it is referred to and allusions drawn from it ten different times in the New Testament. There are ten different references and allusions to the story of Cain and Abel as we looked at it in Genesis chapter 4. For example, it talks about Cain and describes for us the nature of Cain, which we saw pictured and described, but there is some further evidence and description of Cain. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, and in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 20, it describes Cain as wicked and having the wicked nature of Satan. Satan is described in Scripture as the father of lies. Cain lied. He was a liar. And it describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning, and Cain was a murderer. He had the same nature, the wickedness of Satan. That's how the New Testament describes Cain. Then there's also some description about Abel. And it tells us why it was God accepted Abel's offering. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, it tells us why God accepted Abel's offering. It says, Abel made his offering by faith. It was the attitude of the heart that God saw and observed and accepted. In this instance, it was just a, a thank offering. A thank offering that was given frequently to someone who was of superior nature and position than you. So the fact that Cain gave of the fruit of the ground was not necessarily the evil part of why it was rejected. But instead, God saw his heart, a heart of wickedness, of unbelief, and of doubt. And he saw the heart of Abel as he made his offering as a heart of faith and trust and belief. And the scriptures describe Abel as righteous. And we're told that without faith it is impossible to please God. So Abel's faith pleased God, and he declared him righteous. Now there's another interesting set of verses that make reference to Abel, and it specifically relates to Jesus Christ. There are some verses in the New Testament that talk about the relationship or the picture or the description of Abel and the description of Christ and some things drawn from the life of Abel. I'll just point them out to you because they're important for us to understand 
about the distinction between Abel and Jesus. We find, for example, in Abel's life, he made a sacrifice, a good sacrifice in faith, believing and trusting upon God. And then we find him murdered, his death. And that's basically all we know about Abel, those two things. The sacrifice made in faith and his death. And it's interesting, in the New Testament it makes reference of Jesus Christ in contrast to Abel. It's about the blood of Abel. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 24, that the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than the blood of Abel. Now when it says the blood of Abel, which is it talking about? Is it talking about the blood of the sacrifice? Because the sacrifice that Abel gave was a bloody sacrifice. Or is it talking about the blood of his death? Either way, by contrast, the Lord Jesus' blood exceeds that of Abel. If you look at the sacrifice of Abel and the blood spilt in that sacrifice, who did it help? Abel. Did it give anyone else a benefit? No. Did Abel have to give a sacrifice like that again? Well, he would have had he lived. <laughs> had Cain not killed him, he would have had to give multitudes of sacrifices repeatedly over and over and over again all of his life. So the blood of that sacrifice was good for one occasion for one person. Not so the blood of Christ. The scriptures tell us in 1 John chapter 1 that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So that those who come under the blood of Christ don't have to make a sacrifice again and again and again repeatedly throughout all of their lives one time for all sin. So the blood of Jesus Christ exceeded the blood of Abel's sacrifice in its effect and its extent covering the sins of all those covered under the blood of Jesus. We find also the death of Christ exceeded the death of Abel. Abel's death helped nobody. It was just a sad, sad occurrence. Not so the death of Christ. The death of Christ exceeded Abel's in that it provided life for multitudes, for many. The scriptures tell us in John that, the, that Christ gave his life a ransom for many. So the death of Christ was a substitutionary death. Jesus didn't have to die for his own sin, not for something where he had disobeyed God. It was on behalf of others. It was a substitutionary death. He died in the place of people like you and like me, that his blood might cover our sin and that we might find relief from our sin. So the death of Christ and his ultimate resurrection from the dead provided the culmination of God's promise to Adam and Eve as recorded in Genesis chapter 3, 
the serpent crusher arrived and he defeated the devil on the cross and in his resurrection. So that now those covered by the blood of Jesus, those who trust Christ, those who claim him, they now have joy instead of hopelessness. They have peace instead of despair. They have forgiveness instead of guilt. So now I come to you and I would ask, what does the Holy Spirit of God, how does he want to use these truths in your life today? It could be that you are a believer, that you are under the blood of Jesus. You have trusted him. You have experienced the new birth as described in John chapter 3. And you trust Christ and you claim him as Lord and Savior. I would suggest that perhaps you might need some repentance in viewing your life and in, in, in view of God's nature and how we have seen him described in the experiences of Cain and Abel and some of his nature. You might have to repent from sin that you have mistreated him. Not obeyed God as you should, not trusted him like you should. And yet at the same time, it can also bring you praise and joy and cause you to honor and glorify your Lord and Savior. Well, what if you're not a believer? What if you have never trusted in Christ? Up to this point, you have lived a life as described by Allison and by millions of people. A life lived by multitudes of people down through the centuries. A life of individual freedom, autonomy. I will do things my way in the way I want to do them. But today, something has come into your mind, an enlightenment to your mind to understand yourself in new ways that you've never seen in the past. And the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see that you need a Savior. You cannot find happiness on your own. In no way can you satisfy the demands of a holy, sovereign God. There is a chasm between you and God. And the only bridge between them is Jesus Christ, the substitute, who died on the cross, whose blood was spilt, on behalf of people like you and like me. And that for all those who trust and call upon him, that blood will wash all of the sins away. And so I pray for you today. I pray that the Spirit of God will give you that new birth that you need, that will change you completely, give you a new nature, a nature of God himself coming to live within you. I pray that he will bring that life to you. I'm praying that he will give you the faith to believe and to trust Christ and to call upon him and trust him as your own Lord and Savior. And I pray that you will do that today. I pray that the Spirit of God will bring that into your life today. I welcome your comments. You can reach me by email. My email address is hill underscore tom at att.net. I'll give that to you again. Hill underscore tom at att.net. 
or you can visit my website. My website is www.masterministries.org. Thank you for joining me for today's lesson from Cain and Abel. I pray that God will use it in your life to strengthen you and use it perhaps in your life to bring you to saving faith in Christ, the Savior of sinners like you and like me. Thank you.